everyone. My name is Bennett Sorensen, and I'm a third-year medical student at OHSU and your host for today's Emergency Medicine Interest Group podcast. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. James McKeith, who is Assistant Clinical Professor of Emergency Medicine and Aerospace Medicine at the University of Texas Medical Branch, Medical Director of United States Antarctic Program, and the Chief Medical Officer at the Center for Polar Medical Operations to discuss what practicing medicine in Antarctica looks like. Dr. McKeith, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. First, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your personal story from when you became interested in medicine to your involvement with McMurdo Station? Sure. So I um, was actually a business major and in college and took a job as a phlebotomist at a local hospital in San Jose, California. Uh, and that was because you could work, this was in 1978, 79, you could work from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. and make $15 an hour. Uh, now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money uh, now, but at the time, the minimum wage was three fifty an hour. So I was earning as much in two hours as my friends were making in a, in a full day of work. And uh, I loved my time in the emergency department. And that actually is the first time I ever considered medicine as a career. And I eventually ended up going to uh, medical school at Jefferson uh, Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And then I completed my residency in emergency medicine at Los Angeles County USC Medical Center. Um, I subsequently did go back and get a master's in health administration uh, and was uh, the medical director of a hospital emergency department in Santa Rosa, California. When I came across a website uh, for a physician in Antarctica, uh, and as a as a medical student, actually, um, you guys are probably too young to remember Jerry Nielsen, but she developed breast cancer while she was working at as a physician at the South Pole. And at the time, I... Uh, said, oh, that's cool. There's doctors at the South Pole. Maybe I'll do that someday. And, and then forgot about it for, you know, 20 plus years. And then in 2012, I was, uh, you know, look, I came across this website and I said, yeah, I'll send my name in. We'll see what they say. So I uh, did apply and didn't hear anything actually for about two years. And I had forgotten about it again when uh, uh, the director at the time of the Polar Center for Polar Medical Operations named Scott Parazinski, an ex-NASA astronaut who was the current director, uh, you know, called me up and said, hey, we have an opening in McMurdo, you know, starting August 2012, you interested? So I you know, figured I'd go down and, and interview and see what it was like. And I did decide to take the position. And I spent uh, from October 2012 until March 2013 as the lead physician in McMurdo Station in Antarctica. Uh, and uh, I came back from that and uh, I ha had had my eyes opened actually about you know the ways we practice medicine. Uh, and I came back and did some uh, locums in addition to working at my prior hospital uh, as a, uh, an emergency medicine physician. Uh, and then uh, in 2015, uh, an opening came up at, for the position I applied and was subsequently accepted. And now here I am, you know, coming up on uh, six years later, same, doing the same thing. Wow, that's quite a transition to make in your career. What did you know about McMurdo Station at the time? And if you could give us any kind of history on, you know, the development of that station there and kind of what they do. Sure. 
Yeah, so I knew next to nothing, quite frankly. Uh, I didn't know that McMurdo wasn't at the South Pole when I first uh, came across it. So I now work for the University of Texas, but we are the logistical support, uh, obviously medical logistical support, for uh, a company that's called the Antarctic Support Contract. And that's a group of seven companies that uh, support the National Science Foundation. So the National Science Foundation owns three stations in Antarctica. That's the South Pole is one of them. Uh, there's McMurdo Station, which is the main logistical hub, and that is in the Ross Sea, the edge of Antarctica, and that's essentially south of of Christchurch and and, and Australia. And then the third station is Palmer Station, which is on the Antarctic Peninsula, and that's the kind of the long arm that reaches off of Antarctica, and uh, it's just south of Chile. And so the 1957, you know, the group of nations, the United Nations, I believe, created what's called the uh, International Geophysical Year. And part of what they did is the countries got together and they decided to explore Antarctica. And so it was essentially a U.S. Navy uh, function for the first number of years. And they literally took a bunch of ships down to Antarctica and put tents up and buried themselves in the snow, and and they uh, created a presence there and at the South Pole. The U.S. has had a continual presence since that time. Uh, it was taken over by the National Science Foundation from the Navy a number of years ago. They have been managing it ever since. And the point of the National Science Foundation, you know, which is supported by U.S. taxpayers, being down there is to perform science that's only possible to perform in Antarctica. You know, somebody came to me the other day and said, hey, we have this idea about frostbite. Frostbite, can we do it in Antarctica? Well, there's a lot of other places that you can do that, right? And they're not nearly as expensive or complex logistically to get you down there. But Antarctica is specifically of interest for, you know, I mean, there's climate change, there's geology and there's biology and there's the food web uh, and astronomy. I mean, the South Pole is, you know, dark for six months out of the year and it's pointed to in areas so we're trying to study the essentially the origins of the universe so there are a lot of very specific tasks that 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 information is only available in antarctica and that's what we are there to do so medically we support the national science foundation and the science projects that they're undertaking and how long has there been a medical presence there and kind of how has that developed over time yeah so interesting so uh, you know the military has rules about what has to be present when you are, you know, operating a, a military facility, a, a base, essentially. And you know, part of that is you got to have a doctor, right? And so since 1957 that, you know, they've had a doctor down there. But interestingly, there are also, you know, other aspects of it. For instance, there used to be a bowling alley. It's not there now. But, you know, there's there's sports and recreational facilities that have to be there. And there's a library and there's a coffee shop. Now it's a, it's a Quonset hut, but, you know, it still is a coffee shop. And there's actually a couple of bars and two gyms. So when you think about it at the stations, and I'm primarily speaking of McMurdo because that's our largest station, but we have you know, some aspects of all of that at the three stations. So historically, it came from the Navy, and then it transitioned over to civilian, you know, owned and managed. And now it's actually supported by, you know, the National Science Foundation and these other companies. And of course, the U.S. Air Force is, as we fly there now, we don't take boats back and forth to get there. But so it's frequently described as a small mining town. And that's pretty 
you know, pretty accurate description. We have, you know, mechanics and carpenters and plumbers and, you know, welders and machinists and firemen and nurses and doctors, you know, and, and so if pretty much anything that's in a small city is present in some size capacity in all three of those stations. In terms of kind of what it's like to be a doctor there, what are some of the common things that, you know, physicians and other medical personnel are doing there? And what are some of the things that they can't do and they have to, you know, figure out a way to maybe do it or, you know, get someone out of there? That's an excellent question because it was one of the things when I came back, I said it changed me. That was one of the aspects of practicing medicine down there, which is so interesting. So, you know, the first thing is we staff medically depending upon sort of the population. So Palmer Station, very small. It's got 40 people at the max and 20 at the minimum. We have a doctor there and that's it. It's South Pole Station where it's as low as 40 people in the winter and it's as high as 150. We have a doc and a mid-level. Now, we we really only need one provider there, but you know, if something happens to that provider during the middle of the winter, we can't get in. So we have another provider there as, as assistance and backup. And at McMurdo Station, we have a doc. We have a manager during the summer. We have a mid-level. We usually have a pharmacy tech. And for a month or so, we have a dentist. So the first difference is we're not staffed like a hospital. Okay. So you have to do a lot of the things yourself. And as a medical student, you're learning to start IVs and all, and all that stuff. But those are the kind of tasks that the doc and the mid-level you know, have, just have to do day by day. We teach people how to run the labs. So we have some pretty good equipment for, you know, performing basic chemistries. You know, we do use iStats, but we've got other devices, something that'll run a CBC and, you know, troponin. And we do a, uh, we can actually do some viral panels looking at the uh, DNA, you know, via PCR in an automated machine. We use something called a piccolo, which can even do, you know, some cholesterol and some other meds. So we have a fairly, fairly good, lab capability for day-to-day operations. We can't run anything sophisticated. And then we don't have a CT scanner, so we have plain x-rays, and we have to teach the docs and the mid-levels how to actually perform the x-rays themselves and develop them. Now, we do send them up to a radiologist via secure file transport protocol, get them read. But so, you know, you're, you're down there, you don't have any advanced technology. You're You're making medical decisions based upon the basics. It's sort of like the old time medicine. And one of the things that we have found is that people that have trained recently have a hard time making medical decisions without that advanced technology. People that trained, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, that's essentially what we're doing, right? Is we're practicing medicine with 1970s or 80s technology to a certain extent. We do have more advanced machines, but it, that's the level, you know, no CT scanners, no MRI. And so you're forced to make more clinical decisions. And, you know, at first I was a little intimidated. I mean, I trained residency 92 to 96, and I've been practicing with, it, you know, access to all that advanced technology since then. And so it was very interesting to make a decision based upon just the clinical findings and the basic information I had. And it ended up at the end of the day that I felt I found out I didn't need as much testing as I had been using before. Now, you could argue there's a benefit to certainty, and there certainly is a safety benefit to both the patient and you know even the practicing doc to having a, a access to that advanced technology. But it's not necessary. Now, one of the things that has improved recently is, you know, the, the quality ultrasounds we're getting now and the size of the machines 
you know, it's great. And as, as people training in emergency medicine now get more ultrasound experience, you know, we're, we're able to do things that previously would have required a CT and, and now they just don't. So, you know, on one hand, we have to operate with less technology. And on the other hand, we've got this technology that's just, you know, fantastic and gives us that safety margin, but also, uh, is smaller and cheaper and you know uh, we still have a boat anchor in fact this this year we're sending it back it's an ultrasound machine from the 1980s you know it's it's not quite the size of a vw but it's it's close and it weighs a lot and it's not nearly as good as now what you know and i think it costs eight hundred thousand dollars when it was produced and now you know we have a twenty thousand dollar portable thing that acts like an ipad gives images that are you know beautiful and it's sort of that stethoscope and hand replacement or or adjunct not a replacement and so it's it's fantastic but so the docs you got to do more on yourself of your own you've got to learn how to do more obviously ultrasound's not great for for bones it is useful sometimes and uh, you've got to make decisions with limited uh, capability we do maintain a fairly good drug formulary so we have had mis and had to treat them down there now you're talking pretty complicated. I mean, you're an ER doc, you know, pushing TNK by yourself, not even a nurse to to mix it up. And, you know, you're talking with a cardiologist over the phone about the next steps. So, you know, we have that pharmacologic capability so we can we can treat an MI, but we can't treat a stroke because we don't have a CT scanner. So, you know, we we like we do have a broad formulary. It's uh it's pretty useful. Uh, we're able to manage most things. Our our state admission is to be able to provide critical care for two to three people for two to three days. Uh, and that works at McMurdo, South Pole, and Palmer during the summer. But South Pole during the winter is essentially more isolated than the International Space Station. I'd love to kind of hear what that's like during the winter when you're that isolated. All right. So let's. So South Pole is, you know, it's it's obviously literally at the South Pole. The station is built on a a three mile thick uh, ice shelf. So it's, uh, I'm sorry, it's two miles. It's three miles from other places. So it's about, um, you know, 9,500, 10,000 feet elevation because of the ice. And then the, you know, the earth is a is an oblate spheroid. So it's a little bit flatter at the poles. And so the atmosphere is actually thinner at the poles. So physiologically it's around 10,000 feet or so, uh, 10.5. And then if a low pressure zone comes in, you know, our altitude can go from 10.5 to 11.5, 12.5 in a matter of, you know, hours. And so we have to deal with altitude. Then the average daily temperature outside is in the minus 30s to, you know, during the summers. And it, you know, gets down to minus 100 during the winters. So a South Pole, you know, winter night, minus 100 degrees, absolute darkness, you know, the sun never comes up. That represents a challenge to get aircraft in and out. In fact, you can't fly any aircraft with a hydraulic system because the uh, the seals will burst and you know it just won't work. And we've actually experienced that at even temperatures higher than minus you know minus fifty at times. And so we essentially consider it inaccessible for most of the winter. And so you've got this small group of fifty people. Uh, and you do have a dock and a, and a mid-level, and everyone does their own task, and then they work together to do other tasks to keep the station running. But in a medical emergency, you know, it, it's very difficult to get people out. And so it has been done three times successfully. The last time was in 2016, and we had a, 
a patient that had an MI, and you know, this is all in the news, so I'm free to discuss it, but he had an MI and we actually treated the MI with TNK. You know, he normalized, he had a run of reperfusion arrhythmia that scared everybody, including me at the time, because, you know, we've got this guy down there and what are we going to do? But he did actually, he recovered. By the time, you know, it typically takes 20 to 30 days if you decide to go in to get someone. And we looked at him and said, look, you know, in 20 days, he's experienced all the risk that he's going to experience. Well, most of it anyhow. And and we can maximally medically manage him. So, you know, we have statins for cholesterol. You know, we have anticoagulants, platelet agents. So we decided not to evacuate him. And, you know, I, I can't say that was an easy decision, but, you know, we, we do believe it was the right one. And the reasoning is because to pull someone out during the winter, you have to fly two separate aircraft down. These are propeller-driven aircraft that are that are a little bit slower than a jet, a lot slower than a jet, actually. You know, they, they are small aircraft and you're flying them across the, you know, the continent at night in, you know, just terrible conditions. I mean, you can get wind speeds, 200 knots of wind there, uh, and the aircraft goes like 230 knots, 240 knots. So you've got to find the right weather window at night in freezing, unforgiving terrain with nobody there to rescue you. And so the way we deal with that risk is we fly two aircraft in so that the first one, if it goes down, the second aircraft can go in and, and attempt to rescue them. So you're talking about, you know, sending two aircraft in and six lives going in. And then because there's a pilot, co-pilot and a flight engineer, essentially, in each aircraft. And then, you know, I mean, millions of dollars, right? So we have to do a risk benefit assessment and, you know, deciding it's worth it to spend six, to risk six lives to save one. It could be a pretty difficult decision. So we we had the MI, we treated them, we decided that, you know, it wasn't worth taking the risk. But a week later, we actually had a large bowel obstruction in a fairly young lady. And, you know, not having a CAT scan, we didn't know what was causing it. You know, we dropped an NG tube and, and put a rectal tube actually in and decompressed her because the first day, I believe it was eight centimeters, and the next day it was 12 and, and ascending. So now the small bowel was distending also. And, you know, quite frankly, we didn't know whether she would survive. And all of the possible explanations for that, none of them were good. So we were talking about what to do with her. We were able to compress her a little bit. And two days later, you know, we started her on sips of liquids, as you wouldn't do in a hospital. And she tolerated that. Uh, And then we tried to put her on a, you know, essentially a smoothie, a a very thin uh, consistency meal. And she immediately reobstructed. So, you know, we made the decision to evacuate her. And from the day we made the decision and, you know, instantly, because we're not doing this just by ourselves. I mean, we've got, you know, and I'm going to apologize right now because I'm going to forget the resources that we had. But we needed Great Britain, Chile, Argentina, New Zealand, Australia, uh, you know, uh, Canada, the U.S., uh, you know, and in various aspects, hundreds of people were meeting twice a day, you know, with phone discussions trying to to manage this they pulled the trigger without hesitation once once we made the recommendation medically because ultimately that decision lies with the national science foundation it was nonstop 24 7 to get those aircraft down to her and it took 21 days to get them down so that was you know if we have a couple of astronauts that are you know work with the United States Antarctic program. And, you know, they frequently tell us it's harder to get out of South Pole at the winter than it is to get from, down from the ISS. Because in an emergency, you can evacuate the ISS and be on, you know, back on Earth in 24 hours. But we did decide to uh, take the risk and we got 
both patients out. And there's a lot of things affiliated or associated with that that you know you don't think about. I practice emergency medicine. We medically you know evacuate people by air all the time. But now now I have, for instance, I have someone who's at uh, uh, ten thousand feet who's got a large distended bowel that appears to be obstructed. And if I fly her to a higher elevation to get her out, I'm actually lowering the atmospheric pressure and that bowel is going to distend even more. You know, so that's that's one aspect you have to consider. And another one is we're flying in these aircraft with these ferry tanks, so there's no room in the back. It's all aviation fuel. Well, that aviation fuel gets down to the outside ambient temperature of minus 70 and no heater in the world in an aircraft is ever going to heat the thermal mass of that fuel up. So, you know, we're taking these people out and knowing that they're going to be at those cold temperatures, you know, for the entire time. And so there's a lot that goes into the logistical planning to get those people out. But, uh, you know, I have to give accolades to everybody at South Pole Station and everybody that helped us and the pilots that, uh, you know, flew these missions in dark, in ice, you know, et cetera. Uh, And we successfully extricated both patients and they both survived and did well. And in fact, both of them did come back in subsequent years to uh, to work for the Antarctic program again. But, you know, they're, they are tough challenges logistically and then, you know, even ethically. I mean, you know, what risk is worth taking? Wow. Yeah. All those different kinds of things you have to think about that you wouldn't have to think about uh, practicing medicine uh, in other continents is very impressive. I wanted to ask, you know, as an emergency medicine doctor, but as one of the, you know, few medical personnel on uh, like a station like that, do you have to, you know, practice like more primary care as well? Or are there other things set up uh, medically for patients to kind of get non-emergent care? Yeah. So when we take people down, we tell them that we are an urgent care. You know, we are essentially an advanced urgent care. Now we do actually have ICU capabilities, but, you know, as I said before, you know, you've got a doc and a mid-level, they're the only medical resources and they've got to maintain you know, if, if someone gets intubated, you know, they're 12 on, 12 off until we get that patient out of there. Now, we are very fortunate to actually have, you know, a couple of paramedics at some of the stations during the summer, especially, who can help us out. But, you know, docs and mid-levels don't have experience drawing up drips and, you know, and preparing the IVs and knowing what happens when the IV goes wrong and all that other stuff. So the, you know, we're looking for primarily we try to recruit people that are either emergency medicine or family medicine trained. So, you know, emergency medicine gives us the uh, benefit of, you know, being able to handle trauma and critical care and the like. And, but, you know, I'm not good at managing, you know, hypertension if that becomes an issue or, you know, something like that. Family medicine is not as good as managing trauma in the acute critical care phase, but they do, you know, manage primary care medicine um, all the time. And so when you look at the types of patients we get, you know, primarily it's slips, trips, and falls. And then there's viral, you know, URIs and, you know, sometimes pneumonia and the like. I mean, you can have an MI and a stroke, but those are relatively rare, thankfully. And so, you know, we're looking for kind of a generalist that can do anything. And and then we, you know, we try to teach them what they don't know. For instance, we have to teach all our staff about dentistry because dental issues are actually a very common issue down there. You know, one of the things that we do, so, you know, that's the type, we look for emergency medicine or family practice generalists. They have some experience in dealing with, you know, that stuff. We do medically qualify everybody that 
uh, comes to our stations. And one of those requirements is, you know, we don't turn around. We're, we're not looking for astronauts. I mean, you know, it'd be great if we could get them. But, you know, we take people with their health conditions and we look at them and, the, you know, we want to know everything about their medical history. If they've got a condition, say diabetes, it's got to be stable. They have to have a good hemoglobin A1C. They have to have a, you know, be on a stable medication regimen and they can't have had any hypo or hyperglycemic episodes, right? So, you know, so we want to know their conditions. We want to know they're stable. And then we want to know that we can treat the expected complications of those medical conditions. So say DKA, you know, I mean, obviously we don't expect that someone's going to get into DKA, but we can treat it. So most of the, are you practicing primary care or not is answered by, you know, the patients are stable and they generally tend to stay stable, you know, when they're down there. But, you know, every year we'll find new onset hypertension in someone and new onset, you know, diabetes. I mean, while I was there, we had new onset multiple sclerosis, uh, new onset, you know, diabetes who presented as DKA. We are, we're not practicing a lot of primary medicine because they're stable. And if there are issues, we will try to talk to their docs. If not, we will manage it. But for the new ones coming in, obviously, you know, we're going to have to take care of these people. And so, um, you know, we will use our consultation services at the University of Texas Medical Branch and, you know, try to help manage the patients that way. So, you know, the slips, trips, falls, fractures, sprains, you know, all that. I mean, we're practicing that as primary care medicine, essentially. And then we'll do, uh, you know, a little bit of medical management uh, with new onset diet diseases. And then we'll either work with their provider at home or if they don't have a provider, which a lot don't, then we'll work with you know, UTMB um, to manage those. And one of the things about why, why UTMB, I mean, UTMB is on Galveston. It's a barrier island in the Gulf of Mexico, right? It's hot, humid. It's the exact opposite of Antarctica. But UTMB has been at the forefront of telemedicine, uh, you know, in distance medicine for decades. They've actually managed, uh, they provided consultation services to the South Pole, you know, in Antarctica since 2000. So that's how we got there. But that also means I have access to uh, any, any specialist, you know, that you would expect to see in a university medical center. You know, we do what we do, and when we need it, we need help. Or we get help that's appropriate. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious. The medical professionals that apply and end up, you know, working in Antarctica, what sorts of things are drawing them to that kind of work? And what's, I mean, maybe there's not a typical type of person, but, you know, what are the typical kind of things that draws them? No, you're right. There are actually, we do see certain types of people that want to go. So first of all, you know, if you say you're going to go work into Ant at Antarctica, if you're talking to a friend and you say, I'm going to Antarctica, there's two types of people. There's one who immediately says, oh, that's so cool, pun intended. And then there's the other that says, what? And they will never understand. So that first group of people is the ones who are going to go no matter what. And the other ones are the ones that won't go no matter what. And so, you know, we have providers that they're in that first group. And let's face it, emergency medicine, you know, we're, we like a certain amount of epinephrine running through our bloodstream, right? You know, we're, we're there. Part of it is what we do is we like the intellectual challenge, but part of it is, you know, the excitement and, you know, the knowledge that we're making a difference when time matters. You know, I count us in the same group of people that, you know, like the first responders that when everyone else is running away, we're running towards, okay? And so we get docs that are somewhat adventurous and that want to run towards the 
the uh, the emergency. And so, but we find a couple of groups. So first of all, we require three years post-residency experience because it is so different down there. You just have had to have had enough time practicing, you know, to, to have the knowledge base to be able to operate. We do get a lot of retirees, so especially ex-military, right? These are guys who practice 20 years of emergency medicine and, you know, they're 45, right? So they're now, they've got their retirement income from the military and they're coming down. And then we have a, a you know a group of you know mid level mid career people that for a variety of reasons they want to come down and get away for a little while and, and spend some time doing something and they're you know adventurers uh, and so they go and then occasionally we we'll, we will get someone who's just three or four years out of residency they don't have any children yet and they want to go down and do that and we've had success with you know with all three groups of people you know it's it's a real pleasure to work with them and we have. You know, we do have obviously a smattering of people right now that are different places in their career. You know, uh, people who are, they spent 10 years working for an academic medical center and they're about to transition to a community-based ER for whatever reason. And they have the ability to get up and go to Antarctica for six months. You know, they, they go and do that before they start their new job. So how long are the stints that people are typically doing there? And, you know, how many people decide to come back over and over again? There are there essentially are two locations for time of duration. So McMurdo and Palmer, you know, those are accessible summer and winter fairly easily. So those are six month duration stints, and we don't have anything less than six months duration uh, at either of those two stations. South Pole winter, it's really inaccessible from February fifteenth until November first, unless we want to take those risks we were discussing earlier. And so that's you know that's a nine and a half month stint. And then the South Pole summer, you know, it's opening, it will be opening November 1st. So the seasons are opposite ours. We're going into our winter, they're going into their summer. So South Pole opens November 1st and it will remain open till February 15th. And that's when we'll have, you know, so that's a four and a half month deployment. We generally try to fill the South Pole summer, that shorter duration deployment with people that have previously worked for us. We, uh, you know, it's essentially six months. And I, you know, that's that's hard, right? A lot of people cannot do that. But emergency medicine, especially, you know, they're, they're quite capable of doing it. And we've been, you know, quite successful. We are typically filled a year ahead of time. We found that if we fill it too far ahead of time, like two years there's too much of a chance for family situations to come up or things to change and those people can no longer make it. But, you know, for right now, you know, a year ahead of time, people typically like that much time, that length of time to prepare. And so it, it, uh, it works out well for them right now, because of COVID actually, we've, we have faced some challenges this year and for two reasons. And one, we actually upstaffed quite a bit so that we could handle outbreaks if they happened on the station. We were very fortunate that they did not or have not as of yet. And then, so we we took people from next year's deployment and, and moved them forward. And then, you know, there have been family situations. So for next year, we are we are entering our summer. Our summer is filled. We're, for the following winter, we are missing a, the winter dock for South Pole right now. Uh, and then, you know, we have actually some seasons filled for future and that could, that is a segue into the second part of your question which is a lot of people can only go down for one season but a lot of them can go back our you know and have gone back multiple times so you know right now our our team at McMurdo Dr. Chris Martinez is our uh, our lead physician and Mike and Megan Dore 
are a married couple. They're our PA and nurse manager. You know, this is like their fifth and seventh deployment for us. And, you know, that having people that are able to come back is great. It makes everything run smoother because part of what we have to do is, you know, the medicine doesn't change, but the administrative things of working in the South Pole are a lot different than walking into your ER at 7 a.m. in the morning and, you know, everything's the way it's supposed to be. So, you know, those people that redeploy uh, are a great asset and we, they tell us when and where they want to work and we say, okay, great, thank you. So, you know, it, it's a real pleasure to have people return and, and a lot, like I said, do. Sometimes, you know, it's all new people. And in fact, going into the summer right now, so Mike and Megan are staying, but Dr. Martinez is coming back. And, you know, we have a, a group of new people, which, uh, you know, they're going to enjoy their time there and, and we're going to enjoy trying to help them over the little, you know, the uh, bumps in the road because they don't know how to do certain things. Yeah. And when people do come to Antarctica for their first stint, what are like some of the things about living in Antarctica that really are tough or take some getting used to uh, that people don't even expect? Yeah. What don't they expect? That's an excellent question. I don't know about that. So let me tell you what, you know, my experience, I, I went down and, uh, you know, I, Hey, I knew it was going to be cold, but, uh, you know, I, and I actually, I took advantage, and I would recommend anyone who's listening to us today and is interested, there are a couple of, uh, you know, on Netflix of movies about living and working in the South Pole. Uh, one's by, uh, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, I apologize. But anyway, you just search South Pole or Antarctica on Netflix and you can find them. So it gives a lot more insight that I'll be able to do. But, you know, I, I get down there the first day. So first of all, we landed in the dark. The Air Force pilots were flying night vision goggles, so they... They make the announcement, yeah, we'll be landing soon. And, you know, I keep looking out the window expecting, you know, I'll see lights or something. And no, the next thing I know, you know, we feel the ice, this bam, and the bumping as the skis go or, or the wheels go across the ice. And it's like, you know, what? holy crap. And you get out. And, you know, when we went there in August, I mean, it's dark 24-7 for the first three, four, five weeks. Uh, and then the sun rises and, you know, the sun recently rose uh, in, in Antarctica you start having, you know, 12, uh, not sorry, like, you know, 18 hours of dark and maybe a couple hours of, you know, light. And eventually it switches over to 24 hours of light and no darkness for the rest of the summer. So, you know, uh, one of the things is I get, you know, we are on call. So I get a call at 3 a.m. and I'm in my you know dorm room without a window and I walk outside and it's bright light out and it's like, oh, wait, what's going on? little time dilation here i don't know what happened but i also remember that you know we the first time we got there we we took a van out to a site that was at most a half mile away from the station uh the heater was running full blast and and we got out in our full cold weather gear we call it extreme cold weather gear and you know i was out for maybe i don't know 20 minutes half an hour and freezing so i get into this van with the engine running and the heater running full bore with all of my extreme cold weather gear and by the way, everything that I had brought down, long underwear and socks and hat, you know, and I was freezing. You know, I could not believe how cold I was, uh, you know. And then three months later, you know, it's minus 20 and you're walking outside in shorts and a t-shirt now. It's usually the firefighters doing that, but you know, you you do adapt. So that was something that was unexpected. Uh, you know, 24 hours of daylight, the ability to adapt to cold I tell you, everything is driven by weather down there, but the difference between minus 20 and no wind and minus 20 in five knots of wind is just indescribable. You know, the first is tolerable and the second will freeze you uh, to death and not death, but, you know, so, uh, and, you know, uh, the other thing, the people 
are it's a wonderful group of people like i said there's this cross-section of society down there but people that go to antarctica have the adventure gene you know there will uh, travel during the off seasons a lot of them do come back you know year after year so they'll work six months down and then they'll come back and they'll travel for six months. As they say, you know, they don't have addresses. They have storage depots where their their furniture was. And some of them, you know, people have been working there 10, 15, 20 years. You know, they, they have may have three or four storage lockers spread all over the United States because they may have left from California and they'll go back to Montana for the summer. Uh, but, you know, interesting group of people, fun to, to be with, to work with. You know, the food is actually excellent down there. Uh, it's hard to get fresh fruits and vegetables during the uh, winter, obviously. Uh, when I first started, we did not have midwinter flights to McMurdo. And then we started doing them in uh, 2015, 2016. And now, you know, absent COVID, uh, we would have one midwinter flight a month, which means you could get, actually get fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables um, there. And by and large, it's uh, it's just like anywhere else. You know, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. We do work six days a week, Monday through Saturday, 7.30 to 5.30. Uh, so you get one day off a week, but you try to make that, that day off count. The big thing that I have to be careful to tell people when they deploy is it's not the adventure you think it's going to be. I've had people call me up and say, hey, I want to go down there. I want to climb Mount Vincent. So Mount Vincent is the highest peak in Antarctica, and it's about a thousand miles from where you know any of our stations are. So, you know, so the adventure is being in in Antarctica, and you know, you do get to seals, and you can walk out through the ice, you know, the ice rifts and and the like. But it's not like you know you're you're not recreating Shackleton's trip across the you know the continent or anything. So, it's a wonderful experience. It has a very austere beauty. Uh, and you do begin to, uh, you know, to love it after a little while. But when you first get there, assuming there's daylight, you know, it's either all white or all volcanic brown. Uh, there is an active volcano 20 miles from us, but it doesn't, it erupts constantly. So it's not at risk of having a cataclysmic eruption. It's one of only three, I think, in the world that are like that. So volcanology or the study of volcanoes is something we also you know do down there anyway you know it's a, it's a great experience i could wax poetically or, or i could wax and maybe not be poetic but uh you know it's something that you have to experience it's very difficult to describe yeah and when you say um you know you have one day off a week and you got to make that count what are some of the things that you like to do uh when you have that one day off so you know the the best thing is we have a Sunday brunch that's just fantastic. <laughs> you know they they roll out uh, everything, so you know, everyone gets up. You get to sleep in. You you know you get up. You eat this beautiful you know brunch, and then you know it may be it depends on the person. You may be you know walking around. Sundays is usually our science lectures, uh, and that's where the you know the, there's more PhDs per capita down there than you know many places in the world except for maybe colleges, uh, and so they'll they'll talk about their science. Uh, and it's fascinating. And I have to admit, some of it, you know, it's 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 just above my understanding. But for instance, the Gulf Stream, the reason it exists is because this cold, ultra-dense water sinking, uh, you know, in, in Antarctica actually displaces water north that runs along our continent. And that's what gives us tolerable weather. You know, it's called a Purina, I believe, P-O-R-Y-N-A. I probably both mispronounced it and spelled it wrong. First time I'd ever heard the term, but, you know, fascinating. And um, the South Pole Telescope looking at the birth of the universe. I mean, you know, they, 
uh, and the nu- neutrino detectors that are buried there. You know, I mean, there's just amazing stuff. So you have the opportunity to do science tours or hear science lectures. And then every the rest of the day of the week, uh, by the way, there, there's there's a list, you know, there's a in what we call Highway One, which is the long highway in our major building at McMurdo. You know, there's a headers Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then down below, you know, there'll be 10 to 20 lists of things that are happening that day and everything from yoga to, ex- you know, any kind of exercise you can imagine to, uh, and including, by the way, we have mountain bikes that we ride during the summer because when the snow does sublimate on the, on the island. And so you can ride mountain bike riding. There's lectures and there's you know, sewing groups and movie groups. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's hard to describe everything that's there. And usually the list runs off the bulletin board and they just tape them onto the bottom. But on Sundays, you know, people will go hiking. We could go hiking out to Castle Rock and you can actually climb Castle Rock, which I don't know how high it is, but it's cabled and designed so that it can be done safely. Uh, all sorts of hikes, cross-country skiing. There's people have bands and they, you know, they'll, they'll practice. There's instruments down there and some people bring their own. You know, so there's there's practice and things to do. So, you know, but frankly, from mid-season on, it's it's relaxing and just enjoying a little bit of downtime is, you know, the greatest thing. So we do serve alcohol, like I mentioned, at the bars. And, you know, people can go out and drink. But we obviously have, you know, we have a zero tolerance for, you know, public drunkenness, drunkenness that causes, you know, any sorts of injuries. So, you know, people casually, you know, they get together and we have a couple of drinks. We play, you know, bingo and trivia and, you know, they have karaoke, which... It's hard to describe anything, you know, watching karaoke down there. But, you know, there's there's lots of things to do. A lot of it is community-based, and people make up, the, you know, their own fun uh, with access to the resources that's, that are provided by the NSF. That's super cool to hear about the entire experience of being there um, in Antarctica. And I was kind of wondering if there's anything from the medical perspective that we didn't touch on that you think it's an important thing to bring up in terms of the distinction of how medicine is practiced in Antarctica versus, you know, the States, if there is anything that we didn't touch upon. Yeah. So I, I do tell that the, the major difference that people experience, frankly, is, you know, you're used to walking into your hospital and all the supplies are there. In here, we send healthcare providers down and say, okay, practice medicine. And oh, by the way, be the ward clerk, be the lab tech, be the x-ray tech, be the inventory specialist. You know, so we, we rely on people to tell us what's missing and to make sure that we have adequate orders to supply things down there. So we have a 14,000 mile logistical chain from you telling me I want this and, you know, getting it from, we order it in Texas and ship it to Port Wenemi and then ship it to Christchurch and then, you know, get it to its final destination. So, you know, that's one of the, one of the aspects is, you know, the administration, we call it administrivia, but, you know, the administrative aspects that people just are not ready for. But that's sort of the segue into the biggest and most important issue down there is, you know, we are there to support science and we're doing the best job we can. Anybody that deploys there is going to find something that is not what they're used to. And, you know, I tell them, I, I when I interview people, I tell them, look, I'm here to try to talk you out of this job. I want to tell you the warts we have and why you shouldn't want it because I don't want it to surprise anyone. And then, you know, my closing is always that I guarantee you something's going to be wrong. Something's not going to be the way you expect it. And I'm looking for the person who is going down there and says, okay, this is how we'll solve the problem. Not the person whose, you know, only job is 
is to try to call me and complain about how bad things are, right? And that's it. That's, you know, the, that teamwork is part of what makes the ER work. You've got to be there to solve the problem, not to complain about things or to be unhappy because, you know, you need an arrow kit and we only have the HCA kit, you know? It's it's a little odd, and occasionally, you know, someone will say, "Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'll be great down there," and then they they just can't function well. So you need the adaptable person. You've got to know that you yourself are adaptable in order to be, you know, happy and going down there. And then, as in terms of a place to be, it's just wonderful. What are some examples of times that you found that people? you know, took something that they saw as like a limitation and were able to find a different way around it. Yeah, oh, that's that's almost every day. <laughs> you know, so we call ourselves pack rats. We try not to throw things away because you never know when it might be able, you might be able to use that, you know, for something else. So, uh, you know, there have been tons of solutions and we do have them every day, but, you know, it's things like, here's a perfect example, actually. I do have an example. So we had a person with what appeared to be a stroke uh, out in the deep field. And while, by the way, riding a snow machine 850 miles away from anything else. So we flew out, we bring this person back and, you know, they've, they've got a severe headache and they're clearly altered. And, you know, we have no CT scanner and the weather's terrible and we can't get a plane in. And so, you know, amongst other things, somebody knew somebody who said, hey, one of the penguin researchers is a neurosurgeon. We pull a neurosurgeon out of our back pocket in McMurdo in the middle of, you know, terrible weather conditions. So, and then that same person would say, hey, we need to do a, a lumbar puncture on this person and make sure, you know, it's not meningitis or something. So we actually, we, you know, the LP kit we had, and we actually had supplies, but hey, one of those logistical things, people hadn't thought about the fact that they need to check, do we have adequate lab supplies to make a, to do a gram stain? We didn't have it. So we go to the science lab and we pull out, you know, some of their supplies and we put together stuff and we can now ground stain, you know, a patient. You know, they're, they're, those are those are minor ones. But we have, we have uh, you know, we finagled uh, pressure monitors out of science equipment, you know, and three-way stopcocks and tubing that we have, you know, uh, for patients, uh, which is why we always, you know, on one hand, we have an overwhelming supply of stuff that's 20 years old and it yet by the same, you know, speaking, hey, that might be adaptable, something else someday down the future. We are trying to get better at throwing stuff away. We don't want to be too cluttered. Uh, you know, so it's the large bowel obstruction. So, you know, here's an adaption of medication. So, you know, we dropped an NG tube, right? So uh, didn't work. Rectal tube. Well, we don't actually, we didn't have rectal tubes at the time. We do now. We made a rectal tube. And there was some discussion about whether or not it was the appropriate thing to do. Uh, you know, to decompress whether it would work or not. So we actually made a rectal tube and made it sealable. And actually, we were able to decompress her with that. Then there was a medical discussion, you know, so no advanced imaging at all, trying to decide what the possible causes are in a fairly young person. I believe she was 35. So cancer was considered, you know, you got to consider colon cancer, large bowel obstruction, and she reobstructs. Well, should we use steroids? Well, there was a real, you know, I mean, theoretically, if edema as related to cancer was a component of you know, what was going on, th- there might have been a benefit. But our, you know, our consultants did not think there was much of a, a yield. But, you know, it's my doc on the ground is the one that's doing the provider. So he decided to do a small dose and she actually decompressed. 
and and that was what allowed us to advance to, to fluids and then you know mechanical soft and of course mechanical soft reobstructed or whether that was the right thing or not we don't do but you know you're stuck down there doing things and we actually considered doing a loop colostomy as a life-saving measure with an emergency medicine physician you know who's not surgically trained we don't have an or we don't even have all the equipment you know, we, we fortunately never needed to do that, but that was, you know, sort of adaption. But I'll give you the best making something out of no, nothing example. And this is not ours. This is a Russian doctor who had to do his own appendectomy in uh, 19, I, I believe it was 63 or 68, I forget, with a mirror held by a plumber who scrubbed in to help him. You know, and so he's operating on himself. Uh, and there are pictures that are there are published pictures of this in scientific journals. And of course, I guess this the story that started this for me. So Jerry Nielsen, so the doc that diagnosed her own, you know, breast cancer. I mean, she had to make a biopsy. They stained it down there locally, transmitted the images via satellite, you know, and then we airdropped in medication supplies and ultrasounds. And we did three airdrops midwinter in in McMurdo, or, sorry, in South Pole, of which two of the $30,000 each ultrasounds were completely destroyed. But fortunately, one one airdrop actually worked. And we you know airdropped in meds and an ultrasound. And then we got the rest of the staff together and they helped perform this biopsy that diagnosed the cancer. And then they dropped chemotherapeutic drugs in. You know, so it is things like that. You never know what the adaptation is going to be. You see what your problem is and then figure out how to solve it. Wow. And it just kind of, it's, you know, it captured your imagination at the time and, you know, eventually brought you out there uh, to do it yourself. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that's so incredible hearing all those stories. And it sounds like, you know, those stories, you know, as McMurdo continues to be in a place that's very inaccessible, will continue to be a place where medicine is just practiced dramatically different. Right. And that's actually one of the benefits of emergency medicine is that, you know, we can go to different places and do different things. And it's, it's been a great boon to me and, and my career. And I know many, many other people feel the same way. And going to the South Pole, that's one of the benefits. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close up here? No, I appreciate your time today. I hope I didn't talk too long. But uh, it was my pleasure to share you know, the experience in Antarctica with you and your audience. Oh, the pleasure is all ours in hearing all these different stories. Thank you so much for joining us today. 